0: All right, kids, time to come on up. I have a seat up here. All right, come on up, find a spot to sit. Even if you're a visitor, feel free to come on up and join us. You can sit right down here on the floor, guys, right over here. All right, good to see everyone again. All right, now this is the final Sunday of our Advent season when we anticipate the coming or the arrival of Jesus, which we remember at Christmas time, right? So this is our last Sunday of doing that. And so we lit the first candle, so we can light the first candle, which was the expectation candle. Good job, you guys remember. So we'll light the first candle on our wreath because the people of God, they expected, they believed that a Savior would be coming, right? And then we'll light the second candle, that was our prophecy candle, good, because the Old Testament told about the coming Savior, right? So that was prophecy. Third candle last week was our angel candle, yep, because the angels announced the birth of Jesus, yep. And then today we're going to light that fourth candle, which is called the shepherd candle. Yeah, the shepherd candle, good. All right, so the shepherds at this time... They were looked down upon by the other people. They were kind of considered the lowliest people of the society. But as we read the Christmas story in the Bible, we find that the shepherds, they had a really special thing happen because they were the first to hear of the announcement of the birth of Jesus Christ. And so the angel, an angel came to the shepherds as they were out in the field with the sheep. That's what shepherds do, right? They're out in the field watching the sheep. An angel came to them, and we read in Luke 2, it said, the angel said, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David has been born to you a Savior. And so that had to be really exciting news for those shepherds, don't you think, to hear this great news? This was the one, this Savior, this was the one they were expecting. This was the one that was prophesied about or foretold. So they were waiting, and here's this good news of the Savior being born. Do you know what the shepherds did next? We continue reading. So they, the shepherds, hurried off, and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. And when they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. So these lowly shepherds, these people that everyone else looked down upon, they were the first to hear about the Savior being born. And after they heard, what did they do? They went to see him, didn't they? They went to see. And then after they saw him, they told other people that they saw about Jesus, the Savior, being born. And so do you think that during this Christmas season we can be like the shepherds in some ways and tell other people about Jesus? We can do that, can't we? We can tell them about God being born as a baby and how he lived a perfect life, and then he went and died on the cross for our sin, and then he was raised to life again. We can tell other people that as well. And so the first candle was the expectation candle. Second candle, the prophecy candle. The third one was the angel candle. And what was the name of this last one? The shepherd candle, right? Because the shepherds were the first to hear about the Savior being born. Now, if you come back tomorrow night for our Christmas Eve service, we'll see that center white candle being lit, and that one's called the Christ candle. So be sure you come back tomorrow night so we can see that being lit. Thanks for coming up. You guys can go back and have a seat.
1: All right, so kids, tomorrow night, you'll just stay right up there and you'll help us sing away in the manger, and we will talk about the shepherds tomorrow night as well. This morning, we're going to be in the section just before that in Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. So tomorrow night, we'll do 8 to 21, which is a wonderful text of these shepherds, Um, but this morning, we're going to focus on... Christ's birth. I think it's uh, wonderful that this time of year, wherever you go, the gospel's being preached. Songs on secular radio stations that proclaim Christ is king. Uh, Nativities and all manner of government buildings proclaiming that Christ is born. It's awesome. And so here we are in this uh, most amazing text. I I want you to be careful to hear this well. All right, you're very used to Christmas. You've heard this so many times before, but please give ear to this wonder, this amazement that God became man. Let me read. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage, or patriarchy, or fatherhood of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Let's pray. Father, please deal richly now with us, your servants, that we might live and keep your word. God, open our eyes to this most wondrous things out of your law. May we never wander from your commandments, but consider how delightful all your testimonies are. In Christ's name, amen. So of the four Gospels, if you're not familiar with the Bible and the New Testament, we have four uh, true, historically accurate narrative accounts of uh, Christ and his life and death. Only two of those Gospels, Matthew and Mark, give us any kind of information or truth of Christ's birth. And only Luke... This book tells us how Joseph and Mary ended up in Bethlehem. Uh, So we'll get into that a little bit later. This is very straightforward. And you'll notice that we are given uh, some historical information. of Caesar Augustus and this registration of a governor named Quirinius in Syria. Uh, And Luke is giving us this information because it was true. The recipients of Luke's gospel would have read this and gone, yeah, I remember. I remember having to register. And yet in our day, uh, religious snobs and people with heads too big for their shoulders uh, quibble about this Quirinius guy. There isn't a historical record of a registration happening under his and so on and so forth. And C.S. Lewis calls that chronological snobbery that we 2,000 years later think we have more historical accuracy than they did back then. So be care of that kind of stuff. Take care. There's lots of simple explanations for that. So uh, Caesar Augustus decrees that everyone should be registered because he's a tyrant and he wants to take everybody's money in the form of taxes. No different than our day, correct? Right? There's only two sure things in your life, death and taxes, same thing back then. Uh, this guy Quirinius was governor of Syria where Joseph and Mary lived and they traveled from Nazareth and Galilee, northern part of Israel to the southern part just south of Bethlehem where they were to be registered. Uh, will we think that uh, the reason they went there is because not only is this David's hometown and that's what Joseph's line is, but Joseph likely owned land there. You would have registered to be taxed where you owned land and he had family there. So that's why we think he went there. And while they were there, Mary came along, who was by this time very pregnant. She was big with child, as they say. Uh, She gave birth. And you'll notice in verse 7 how tender Luke describes this birth. Luke is a physician by trade, and so he describes with some tenderness this birth. He's wrapped in these swaddling cloths and laying gently, tenderly in a a manger. Let's talk about Caesar. Caesar. Uh, this Caesar Augustus is the great-grandson of Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar was several decades before this. He, he, this guy, uh, Caesar Augustus, is the first kind of single Caesar over all of the Roman Empire. This guy was a big deal. He was big time. He's the most powerful human being in the world. It isn't an understatement that he decreed that all the world should be registered. He basically ruled over all of the known inhabited world from the British Isles all the way through to India. He, he could give a word and cause all of the human beings everywhere to have to do something. He, he was a big deal. And what he decrees is that everyone should be registered for the purpose of taxing. You know, he's a big deal. He's got to pay uh, for all of his government and keeping people happy and so on. But uh, one thing to note here is that even though uh, Caesar at that time would have been everything and a little baby born in Bethlehem would be nothing, it's exactly opposite of what is historically true today, right? Anybody thought about Caesar Augustus in the last decade? How many of you thought about Jesus Christ? And so here we have God using the most powerful human being in the world to accomplish his purposes. That's all that's going on. So one of the things Luke is doing is he's teaching us how to view the world. He's teaching us how to view the world through eyes of faith. Caesar Augustus made a decree, and Christians would be looking at that, not whining about having to travel, not whining about taxes, but realizing that God is doing what God always does. Human beings intend things for evil. God is always using them for good. Because God had prophesied as uh, Elder Terry read in Micah 2, but you, O Bethlehem of Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth one who is to be ruler of Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from of ancient days. And so God is using this big guy, this Caesar, to accomplish his purposes. All right, Proverbs 21.1, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Remember I said last week, Prophecy isn't just foretelling. Prophecy is creating a reality. Prophecy is speaking into reality that which God would have happen. And when God spoke through his prophet long before in Micah, it would be fulfilled. And look how God does it. How would Joseph and Mary end up 90 miles south while she's nine months pregnant? How would God do that? Well, he would cause the ruler of the known world to tyrannically tax everyone and cause them to have to move south that far. And so you can apply that to everything in your life, can't you? Why why is whatever happening in your life happening as a believer? Because God is sovereignly intending it for your good. As you... Look at our world, especially our country in great turmoil. When Our president can hardly walk a step without everybody in the media going crazy. God is doing what God is always doing. He is using everything in this world for our good. And then in this text, even though we have this great Caesar making this great decree, he's simply a footnote in this text. Everything is about Jesus Christ. And so make much of Christ in this world. So, Mary and Joseph travel from uh, Nazareth to Bethlehem. And as I said, we think that he likely did that, not only because he was of the house and lineage of David, because that's where he was from. That's where he probably had family land, that's where he had property, that's where his family would be. Bethlehem is about five miles south of Jerusalem. It is the place where King David was born. You'll note in the text that it's called the city of David. Now, David ruled in Jerusalem, but he was born and raised in Bethlehem. David ascended the throne in Jerusalem, but he was made. Who he was happened in Bethlehem. And Luke, if you remember from the last couple weeks and this week, goes to great lengths to connect Jesus with David in Bethlehem. Why? Just think about who David was. If you remember, when the prophet came to David's household, to David's father, to anoint one of his sons king, what was David doing? He was shepherding. He was the youngest of eight total sons. He was a shepherd. Bethlehem was a place of agriculture. It was a place of hard work. It was a place of pastures where shepherds worked diligently feeding and protecting their sheep. Remember what David did one time? Uh, He was going to face Goliath, and they said, aren't you afraid or whatever? Why would you do that? Remember what he he said? Listen, I I, I was a shepherd, and I killed lions, and I killed bears in protecting the sheep. What is this chump? David was a shepherd. It is no mistake that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. It is no mistake that Jesus was born in a place where shepherds are made, where men are made, where men with blood on their hands protecting their sheep are made, where men spend their nights, as we'll see, tomorrow night, watching over their sheep. Because who is Jesus Christ but the great shepherd of God's sheep? What did Jesus do even while he was on earth? What did he spend the bulk of his time doing while on earth? Feeding God's people, teaching. Teaching them the truth of God's kingdom, of God's word, of this great gospel. In John chapter 10, why don't you turn there with me? One book to the right. John chapter 10, verses 11 to 18. I am the good shepherd. That's Christ. I I was born in Bethlehem. I was born the place that my father David was born. I was born in the place where shepherds are made. And the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He was a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep, sees a wolf coming, leaves the sheep and flees. The wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. But not me. I'm a good shepherd. I own these sheep. I know my own and they and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I have known the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the fathers love me, because I laid down my life, that I may take it up again. Christ was born in the Bethlehem, because that's where shepherds are made. That's where men are made who will give their lives for their sheep. It's where Christ was born. That's what's going on in this text. That's why Luke takes such great pains to show us that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And if you were alive at that time, you could go to Bethlehem and ask about these things, and everybody would have known them. In Ezekiel chapter 34, God uh, is very weary of the human shepherds he has over his people because rather than feeding the flock, the shepherds are fattening themselves as the, as the sheep starve. God says of these sheep, behold, I am against the shepherds. I require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. So what's going to be God's solution? I myself will shepherd search for my sheep and will seek them out as a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered. So I will seek out my sheep. I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered. I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and I will bring them in the land of their own and I will feed them and I will feed them with good pasture. I myself be the shepherd of my sheep and I will make them lie down. I will seek the lost, I will bring back the strayed, I will bind up the injured, injured, I will strengthen the weak, and the fat and the strong I will destroy and I will feed them justice. God's promise to save his sheep is always to come and do it himself. And that's what he did in the person of Jesus Christ. He came to feed his sheep. He came to to rescue them, to bring them in, to protect them. This is who Jesus, this is what defines him. This is what he did. And this is what he's continuing to do by his spirit in the preaching of the gospel. This is what he's given you pastors and elders for. That we might, by God's grace, shepherd you, feed you, protect you, discipline you, guide you. This is what Christ has come to do. This is what he has done. And this is what he's continuing to do. God is using simple worship services like this to shepherd his sheep so that not one of you may be lost. This is how Christ carries on his shepherding work. And so Christ came to be a shepherd. You'll notice too in verse 4 that Bethlehem, they traveled there because he, David, was of the house and lineage of David. That word house... Uh, It talks about the household of David, the the descendants of David coming forward, as does the term lineage. But the term lineage is one that's less frequent today. It just simply means fatherhood. David was a father, a patriarch over a people. He was the father of a people. He was the one from, from whom all those following him get their identity from, their meaning from. This is a big deal in Scripture. In Ephesians 3, we have a prayer that's begun with, all fatherhood gets its name from the Father in heaven. Jesus is here identifying with a household, with a father. This is something our world is at war with, isn't it? This kind of a a statement of patriarchal headship of a man ruling as a father over a family is disgusting. At worst, maybe just ignored at best. And yet you know in our world there is nothing so needed as a father. Statistically, 50% of Children are growing up without a father. Or if a father is physically present, he is emotionally and spiritually absent, if not abusive. So the crying day, need of our day is fathered. And Christ came in the line of David, his father, to take up the mantle of David, which is to bring us to the father. And so you and I, because of Christ, have a father. And Christ teaches us truth. He disciplines us. He works hard to provide for us. He protects us. He delights in us as children. He leads us to his father. And so fathers, you too have a lineage. You have a fatherhood over a family. And you can learn much from Christ about that. So Joseph is in line of David, as we've seen. He and Mary head back to Bethlehem at ba- because they had land, their family there. And Mary, very great with child, goes along with him ninety miles, nine months pregnant, or so. <laughs> ninety miles, about what here to Stevens Point? Maybe a little short of that. How long? How many days of a walk is that? I don't know. Three, four, five days. She might have walked. She might have ridden a donkey. We don't know. Just because you see Mary or here, Mary ran a donkey, we don't actually know it doesn't say in the text. Why did Joseph take her with And I ask this for two reasons. One, she's very pregnant. And two, nobody in his hometown would have known that his unwed, betrothed wife is pregnant he could have avoided a lot of embarrassment and a lot of shame and a lot of explaining. He took her with. He took her with because he loved her. He cared about her. He didn't want her to have to go through the pain of childbirth without him. He didn't care about the shame. And, of course... There is shame in sexual immorality. Not that Mary was sexually immoral. We know she's a child by the power of the Holy Spirit. And yet he was willing to go into that with her. And so, men, we can learn something from him about that here. But you can't have compassion on a woman like Mary if you do not admit that she would have been ashamed. This would have been very difficult. And so Joseph, as we read in Matthew's account, is a righteous man, and this is just another evidence of it. Men, we can learn a lot from Joseph. He is a godly, righteous man. He goes through a great ordeal because he loves his wife. He cares for her. He would not leave her behind. Mary gave birth, as we read in verse 7, her firstborn son there is no greater news to the ears of a sinner than this birth. We have seen previously in chapter one verses 33, that this child within Mary that was born, that we read, is God. And we see now that he is born as a human. This is the mystery of the incarnation, or the second person of the Trinity the Son of God, took on humanity. He is completely God and completely man. He is God in every way that God is, and He is like us, apart from sin, uh, in every way. He is the begotten of God from eternity past and begotten of a virgin for us and for our salvation. He has two natures in one person. He is divinity and he is humanity. Without confusion, without change, without division, without separation, these natures are distinct but in no way lessened or annulled by one another. He is not less God because he became human, and he is not less human because he's God. He is fully God and fully man in one person. The characteristics of each are totally preserved, coming together to form one person. Incredible. This is our Savior. This is our Lord. Totally unique, none like Him. Notice how earthly this all is. A woman in pregnancy, in childbirth, in an inn. Now, the inn thing there is sometimes a bit confusing. You might picture like a holiday inn, a hotel. This likely wasn't. An inn at that time, at least there's no archaeological record of an inn there. It's probably just a guest room and a house. Uh, that's it. Um, and the manger that was either in a cave or a lot of times the animals would be brought into the home on the first floor and there'd be a room set aside for those animals that needed to be inside at night. And so don't picture like a barn outside. Uh, it's either a cave or a room on the first floor of a home. And there, Mary gave birth to Jesus Christ, our Savior. Very normal. and yet supernatural. And that's how God works salvation to the very normal. Everyday occurrence that have happened billions and billions of times on the earth, childbearing, childbirth. And yet, in this instance, the one who would bear the sins of the world was born. What for? For you and for your salvation. Our sin is a dense cloud separating us from God. No other human being could do this because we're all born in sin we're all too weak no angel could do this because they did not have the nature of man we are hopeless unless the very majesty of God would come down to heaven to us this is God with us this is Emmanuel the very divinity of God and the human nature come together Otherwise, as John Calvin says, the nearness of God would not be near enough for us to hope that God would dwell with us. But you and I now have a firm and future hope that we will dwell with God because God once came and dwelt with us. Because of our uncleanness and because of God's perfection, we were plunged into ruin. We are befouled in sinful corruption. And yet God undertook the task to restore us to himself, to make us children of a father by sending his son as one of us. Paul notes in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, that we have one mediator between God and man. And then listen, he says, the man, Jesus Christ. Why does he say man? Why does he say the God, Jesus Christ? Or why does he just say Jesus Christ? Why is he so intent on communicating to us that Jesus Christ is a man? To comfort us. To let you know that God became us. That we so then can become children of God. Our lives, because of sin, have been swallowed up in death. But now, because of Christ, we can reign in life forever. Because of this event happening. Because of this verse Who could do this but the Son of God become Son of Man? Who could do this? And so, this happened. Chapter 2, verse 7 happened in order to forgive all of your sin. Don't miss that. Christ became man so that in his Flesh in his body, he could take your sin into death and crucify it and end it. Because he's God, he can satisfy the just requirements of God. Because he's man, he can take your place. And so all of your lust, all of your lying, all of your stealing, all of your pornography, all of your disobedience, all of your gossip, all of your slander, all of your refusal to serve God's people in the church, all of your withholding of ties, all of your belittling of your husband, all of the neglecting of your wife, all of the anger that's unjust toward your children, all of your sin, all of your laziness, all of your heartless worship, all of it is made an end by this firstborn son of Mary. And so, let me apply this in one way. Don't deny this by lingering in self-centered, work-centered guilt when you sin. When you sin, Christ actually died to forgive it. You confess that it's forgiven. Don't sit there and stew in it. Go to Christ with it. Confess it. Be done with it. You're not a more holy Christian because you pile on feeling sorry and bad for yourself and your sin. You're less of a one. He died to make an end of it. It is finished. It's not hyperbole. Your sin is forgiven because Christ took on flesh, lived a sinless life, and died in your place for your sin. Another way it is, in our church, in, from the pulpit, I am tough on sin. We talk about putting to death our sin. We talk about dealing with our sin. We talk about being ashamed of our sin. And yet, we also know we have to be tender towards ourselves in our sin. We ought to actually believe that we're forgiven and live like that's true, live in the freedom and joy of that forgiveness. Now You have to take this. I can't do this for you. No one can do this for you. You have to believe because God said it that your sins are forgiven in his son. You have to believe that. That sin that you just keep nursing you have to receive that God has forgiven you of it and will never hold it against you, provided you have faith in his son. To not do so is to do something heinous. So believe it, brothers and sisters. Receive it. She gave birth to a firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, laid him in a manger. And this is the beginning of that by which you are saved and forgiven of all of your sins. One last little note there. We have all made much of that last line because there is no place for them in the end. The inhospitably, inhospitality of Bethlehem was shameful. Let's be more hospitable than Bethlehem, especially to pregnant women, huh? <laughs> let's be a hospitable people. All right, let's pray. Oh, well, Father, what can we do but say thank you for this great salvation that you have provided us through your Son? This awesome, mysterious reality that God became man is too high for us, and yet we believe it, we receive it. Cause us to rejoice in it, oh God. Cause us to believe that we have forgiveness of sins because of your Son. That's it, God. Please teach us to have faith, to believe that you have forgiven our sins. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.